The Eagle and Child, Episode 39. Mere Christianity, Book 4, Chapter 9. Counting the Cost. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where, each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and I'm joined by a man who is always a prophet and never a loss in the balance sheet of life, Matt. I wish I could say that's true for the spiritual life. I think you're a prophet to me. <laughs> that's a very kind thing to say. But thankfully, even though I do know I'm in a deficit in a spiritual life, because of the grace of our Lord, that deficit has been filled. And you can therefore be perfect. And that'll make more sense to the listeners after this episode, because we're going to look at what Jesus meant, or at least what Lewis thinks Jesus meant, by the statement, be ye therefore perfect. What's the quotation for this week? It comes from one of my favorite books, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Wonderful. Although whenever I hear a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote, I hear it with a slight German accent in my head. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to do that for you. <laughs> I'm actually really terrible at accents. Well, at least you don't try doing an English accent. That's the mistake most Americans make. You know, I have been trying actually uh, subtly on my own because I'm kind of, I'm frustrated. I lived in England for nine months and that's plenty of time to try to pick one up. But I just felt really abnormally self-conscious being American trying to do the English accent. So I never did. But now I know you and I'm uh, living with a British individual again. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm paying attention to the little nuances. Just just don't try it in public. That's all. Well, I, I, <laughs> at least not until I've tried it in private enough times. <laughs> uh, the drink this week, we're dipping into some cider. This is Wider's Cider. It's pear and it's called Persecco. Cheers. Cheers. Cider was something that's, that was quite big in England. Oh, yes. When I lived in England, I lived in Gloucestershire, and there was lots of choices for cider. And it's delicious, particularly if you have a sweet tooth. So this past week, I was a guest on The Lamp Post Listener. These are two guys who are reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, chapter by chapter, basically doing what we're doing with mere Christianity. They're doing it with the Chronicles of Narnia. And so they invited me on to discuss the penultimate chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan is breathing on the statues and bringing them back to life. Oh, that would fit perfectly with everything we've been talking about with Theosis. <laughs> exactly. And uh, we spoke about how it parallels with Pentecost. because You have Aslan breathing on these stone statues. So you have the wind. And Lewis's description of this transformation is like a flame licking around the statue. So you also have fire. And actually, one thing I didn't talk about when I was on there is it also parallels with what we call the harrowing of Hades, when after the crucifixion, Christ descends into the dead, the realm of the dead, and brings the dead to life with him in heaven. 
I've never heard that term before, the harrowing of Hades. Sometimes called the descent into hell. That's what I've heard. Yeah, in Eastern Christianity, we typically call it the harrowing of Hades. You know, there's a, one of the lesser-known inkling authors, Charles Williams, wrote a book called Descent into Hell. Mm-hmm. I, I read it in college, and it was over my head. I didn't really understand what he was... He talked about substitutionary love or something like that, and I didn't really get into the book, but I had no idea that that was referring to that moment. Probably would have made the book more understandable to me, knowing that that's what he was referring to. That's just a, a, a lesser-known part of the story, I guess. People don't talk about it as much. But it is actually in the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. You'll hear people say, he descended into hell. That's what it, it's talking about. It's not the hell of the damned, it's the, it's the realm of the dead. Interesting. Well, there we go. Anyway. Lewis starts today's chapter by bringing up a quote that he mentioned before in, in wanting to use this chapter to get rid of any misconceptions that can come from it. He quoted Matthew five forty eight, where Jesus says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And Lewis wants to be sure to get rid of any misconceptions with that. And what Lewis says is that some people think that this means, unless you are perfect, I will not help you. But instead, Lewis doesn't believe that's what Jesus meant. He believes he meant, the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. And to illustrate this, Lewis explains what happened when he had toothache as a child. Uh, He said that he would always resist telling his mother. He knew that she would give him something to ease the pain and to help him sleep. But he said that he would always resist that until the last possible moment, until the pain got really bad. Because although she would help lessen the pain, he knew that she would do something else. He knew that she would take him to the dentist on the following morning. And once he was in the dentist chair, the dentist wouldn't restrict himself to just the tooth in question. Here's what he says. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of teeth that hadn't even yet begun to ache. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. And listeners might not be familiar with that term, an L. An L is about 45 inches. So he's saying if you gave them a bit, they would take much, much more. Today, we would say something like, if you gave them an inch, they would take a mile. I'd never heard of L before. And I was going to look it up. And then I thought to myself, I know for a fact David's going to look this one up, so I have nothing to worry about. (laughs) Seriously, I did. God is like the dentist. Here's what Lewis says. If you give him an inch, he will take an L. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some particular sin which they are ashamed of, like masturbation or physical cowardice, or which is obviously spoiling daily life, like bad temper or drunkenness. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked for, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. And that's really the overriding message of this chapter. That if you open your life to Jesus, if you allow him, he will keep going. He won't just restrict himself to transforming the parts of your life that you think are important. He'll transform everything. He gives us his grace so that he can transform us into becoming the kinds of people, true sons and daughters of God, that are fit for heaven. 
Lewis says that this is why Jesus warned his listeners to count the cost before they decided to follow him. In Luke 14, where Jesus says that we have to take up our cross and follow him, he gives two stories. One is about a man building a tower, and another is about a king on the brink of war. And he says that you don't undertake a building project unless you know you've got enough money to finish it. In the same way, you don't go to war unless you know you can win. So, in the same way, don't open yourself up to Jesus unless you are ready for him to take everything. If we allow him, he will make us nothing less than perfect. However, this doesn't mean that we can't thwart this process. This doesn't mean we don't have free will. We have to say yes to him to come in, but then every day over and over, we have to allow him to continuously form within us, to transform us and to draw us into that divine life. And at any point along the process, we can say no. We always have free will. And Lewis says that Jesus' purpose here is to transform us so that the Father can say of us in the same way that he said of the Son, I am well pleased. And this is very much in line with Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. He asks a question in the book, what is glory? And he goes, glory is this moment, or one of the definitions of glory is this moment when we die, and we are in front of our Lord, our creator, our maker. And he says to David Bates, I am well pleased with you. He goes, imagine what that's going to feel like, what that's going to be like. You, you could be thinking, well, that sounds like we have to work our way so God is pleased with us. Well, no, Jesus is going to get us to that point where our Heavenly Father is pleased with him as long as we allow him to. But all this can still sound very intimidating, because when we know what we're destined for, that seems like a long way away. It's like on day one of your training to run a marathon when you have never run before. You know that in six months' time, you're going to be running a marathon, but it seems almost intimidating. I feel what also is intimidating, because I was reflecting on this, as I was reading the first part, I was intimidated, because if I'm being frank, I am so far from that state, and I know that, and I can picture what that state looks like. We all know the things that we're falling short in in our daily life. But then when I reflected on it, I said, I realized this was intimidating because I thought I had to do it. I don't think I truly believe in the core of my being with 100% that if I just say yes to Jesus and let him, he's going to do this. My human nature says, I need to do this. I need to buckle up. I need to, to commit, to resolve, to have the willpower to get to that state. But that's the issue right there. That's something I need to let go of. And we also don't need to be afraid of our faltering steps. Lewis says that although absolute perfection is ultimately expected of us, that God will also be delighted with our first feeble stumbling efforts to make it through the next day and do the simplest of things. And he quotes one of his favorite authors, George MacDonald. And since we spoke about accents, <coughs> here we go. Every father is pleased with his baby's first attempt to walk. No father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. God is easy to please, but he's hard to satisfy. I'm not going to give you a slow clap this time, but that was well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. When I first read that, I was, I was actually touched by it because I just picture myself in the shoes of being a father someday. And yeah, I would be just so delighted 
when my children, the very first time they crawl and then they walk and they're working there and you know, they're so far from being able to walk on their own, but you're just so proud of that effort. That is probably one of the best analogies I think Lewis has ever given because it is so spot on. I just picture our heavenly father like Matt, you are, yes, you are far (laughs) from walking in the spiritual life. But I am so pleased that you are trying and, and you know you're falling short and I'm here for you and you'll get there. Like that is such an incredible analogy. And sure enough, Lewis says, this should give us encouragement. And, and sure enough, it gave me encouragement. It's like he read my mind as we're going through this. Setbacks are inevitable. We know they're going to happen. The same thing that the child needs to fall many, many times before it walks. We are going to fall many, many times before we walk but we have to keep trying. And Lewis says, each time you fall, he, meaning God, will pick you back up. And he knows perfectly well that your efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. I think that's what I'm slowly learning right now. (laughs) My efforts aren't getting me there. But what's so incredible is the goal has been set. I know where I'm trying to get to. And no power, as Lewis says, in the whole universe, except you, (laughs) except you, Matt Bush, (laughs) can prevent (laughs) him from taking you to that goal. That is so amazing to think about. I mean, seriously, take a step back and think about that. The only thing stopping us is us. And yet, think of the irony. I think the only thing that's going to get me there is me, which is the problem. It's only when I recognize that I am not going to be able to, and I get out of my own way and let the Lord come in completely, 100% surrender, will that process begin. So why is all this important? I mean, I'm curious, David, we're talking all about this. This is great. We know we need to become perfect. It's encouraging to know that God's going to help us. But what is the reason we need to know this? I think Lewis would say it's because unless we have a very clear vision of our destiny, things are going to start going awry as we head on our way. If we don't say remember that we're destined for perfection, at some point we're going to start pulling back and resisting. He says that once we have the one or two sins that we came to God with, that we really felt that we needed fixing, when God starts poking around in other parts of our life, we're going to withdraw because we think we're now good enough. We might not actually want to become a saint, but we've got to remember that he is the creator and we are the creation. He is the painter, we are the picture. And he wants to make us saints. He wants to bring us to him in heaven. How beautiful is that? Every person listening to this right now, every one of us, he's calling us to sainthood. Would you actually believe he's calling you to be a saint, David? Like you, you, if you're like me, you think I'm trying to do the best I can. I want to be good. But no part of me ever thinks I'm going to be in the sainthood category. And I'm probably not going to be. But with that said, that does, that's because of me, not because he's not calling me. I think we have a, a strange false humility that starts kicking in at that point. It's like, oh, I, I, I could never be that great. That's actually pride. Yes. Because what you're really saying when you're saying that is God is not big enough. God is not powerful enough to be able to work through even someone like me. St. Therese Lisieux, the little way, she knew at a very young age she was going to be a saint. But that wasn't pride. 
she also writes with this deep humility that it was only by making herself small and allowing God to work in her that she was going to become this saint. But it's exactly what you said. When you read it, you think, oh, that's prideful. But no, it's not. In fact, the opposite would have been prideful. God intends to send us through a transformation. And if you're an adult listening to this podcast, you've already passed through many different stages of human development already. And not all of those transitions were pleasant. We began life in our mother's womb. And probably if we were given the choice at the time, we'd have probably desired to remain in the womb and not be transformed into infants, toddlers, teenagers, and adults. Lewis's point in saying all of this is that God knew his plan for us, and he was determined to carry it out. And life as a fully grown adult is far more exciting than life in the womb. However, if you could converse with that unborn child, I imagine you'd have a hard time convincing them of this, asking them to leave the warmth and safety and security of the mother's body. They couldn't even consider, couldn't even conceive of all the wonderful things that they would get to experience if they passed through that painful process of birth and growing up. And this makes me think of, I don't know if it's a quote, probably not the right word because it was just a saying that I heard somewhere, but Jesus loves us more than we love ourselves. We think we don't want to go any further. As you were describing, we want to just stay in the warmth of the womb. We want to stay where we are today. It's it's comfortable. It's safe. It's It's certain. And yet God knows I have so much more for you. It's going to cost some suffering. There's going to be some pain along the way. But I love you, David Bates, way more than you love yourself. And so when you think you want to stay here, that end goal is not really what's going to bring you the true joy that you're looking for. And so now whenever I pray about stuff, you know, God, only if this is your will, like, don't let me be doing this because I don't know if that's really what's the best for my interests. I mean, I question everything now of whether I actually know what's good for me or not. I just love pleasure, comfort, stability. And so my prayers tend to be trying to encourage that. (laughs) We're spiritually hobbits. We like regular meals, warm hobbit (laughs) holes, predictable life. And I think that's why Lewis says that to shrink back from God's plan isn't humility. It's laziness and cowardice. And to submit to it isn't conceit or megalomania. It's obedience. Lewis brings us back to the concept of this interplay between grace and free will. And he comes back to this constantly. And actually, aside here, uh, in like two weeks, I believe, and a Thursday, the C.S. Lewis Society in New York, the Thursday night event, the once a month event, is going to be on, C- I believe it's titled C.S. Lewis and the Relationship Between Grace and Works. Going to be interesting. I know, right? (laughs) I was pretty (laughs) excited when I read that. But here's what Lewis says about this. On the one hand, we must never imagine that our own unaided efforts can be relied on to carry us even through the next 24 hours as quote-unquote decent people. On the other hand, no possible degree of holiness or heroism, which has ever been recorded of the greatest saints, is beyond what he is determined to produce Every one of us. That's a quote right there for you. We can do nothing of it. Nothing. And yet he calls every one of us to sainthood. Leon Bloy, he said, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. Well, that's powerful. And then in this section, Lewis has a very interesting line. He says, the job will not be completed in this life. 
but he means to get us as far as possible before death. So that suggests more is going to happen after death, which is interesting because that that sounds a little bit like purgatory. Yeah, uh, it might surprise a lot of listeners to know that Lewis actually did believe in a form of purgatory, despite being a Protestant. He explains this more fully in Letters to Malcolm. He says, Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart if God said to us, It is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip of mud and slime, but we are charitable here, and no one will unbraid you for these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Should we not reply, With submission, sir, and if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir. Lewis goes on and says, I assume the process of purification will normally involve suffering, partly from tradition, partly because most real good that has been done to me in this life has involved it. But I don't think the suffering is the purpose of the purgation. The treatment given will be the one required, whether it hurts little or much. He gives us a visual image to describe purgatory. And it shouldn't really surprise us, because if you've read through Mere Christianity, you know Lewis hated the dentist. He's already mentioned him in this chapter. Yeah, I never have that bad of experience with the dentist. You brush and floss. It's American dentistry. Very different world. But he says this. My favorite image of this matter comes from the dentist chair. I hope that when the tooth of life is drawn and I am coming round, a voice will say, rinse your mouth out with this. This will be purgatory. The rinsing may take longer than we can now imagine. The taste may be more fiery and astringent than my present sensibility can endure. But it will not be disgusting or unhallowed. And I'd just like to spend a few more moments just talking about this idea, the, the logic of purgatory that Lewis is putting forward, both in Letters to Malcolm and here in this chapter that he's hinting at. Even after a lifetime of pursuing Christ, we're probably not going to be perfectly conformed to him. Not only are we still likely to be sinning, we'll still have an attachment to sin, an inclination or a desire to choose lesser goods over greater ones. However, we know from Scripture in Hebrews 12 that nothing impure can enter heaven. So something has to be done between death and our standing before the throne of the all-holy God. And this is a purification by God which we call purgatory. And whenever I'm talking about purgatory, I'd like to mention two family members who, after a significant falling out, were no longer speaking to one another. Yet they both profess faith in Christ. If these two people had ended up in heaven in that state, I'm pretty sure heaven wouldn't have remained heaven for very long. The work of God's grace would have to take place in their hearts before they'd be ready to worship before the same throne. And when this happens, I'm sure it wouldn't necessarily be a particularly pleasant experience for either of them, just as the process wouldn't have been painless if they'd reconciled while they were alive here on earth. Letting go of pain is its so often painful in and of itself. I have just never been able to conceive of how such hurt could be carried with them past heaven's gates. Rancid wounds would have to be lanced and given an opportunity to heal. And I'm sure this is a topic we're going to be touching on again in our next book that we're discussing, The Great Divorce. Uh, but if anyone listening, if you're not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, you might struggle with this idea. I just encourage you to think it through, think through what we've discussed here, and please feel free to reach out to us and see if we can help explaining it any further. And frankly, you can Google this and probably find better resources than David and I <laughs> could. <laughs> it's amazing what you can find through some just five hours of researching, honestly, an hour of researching online nowadays.
suffering plays a very important role in this transformation process. But as a, a new Christian, and by new Christian we mean someone who's coming to the faith recently, they, they understand that suffering was most likely needed to bring them to Christianity. We all know this. A lot of times it's when we hit rock bottom that we, we turn to Christ. And he says in The Problem of Pain that suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, to get our attention. But the struggle for many individuals becomes with the suffering after conversion. I've turned to Christ. I should just be at peace in my life. Why, why am I experiencing this suffering and this pain now? I have the Lord and Savior. I've given myself to him, to his will. He's got your attention. Yeah, he's got my attention. Yeah, he's, in fact, he's got my entire attention. And here's what Lewis says to why God allows suffering after conversion. Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level. One might even say further up and further in. Oh, one might say that. <laughs> Lewis goes on to say, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make us, which earlier we learned was perfect saints. Sons of God. When I read that paragraph, I couldn't help but think of the suffering in Lewis's own life. His mother died at a very young age. He had a bit of a troubled childhood, sent away to boarding school. But in particular, the death of his wife, Joy Davidman, from cancer, like his mother. And I wonder if Lewis ever reread his work and came back to this paragraph to be able to say God is, was forcing him on and up and to a higher level helping him to become braver, more patient and loving than he'd ever dreamed of before. This goes back to what I said earlier. God has plans far greater than we can imagine. He loves us so more, much more than we love ourselves. And Lewis illustrates this well with another example from George MacDonald. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you're going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I love that comparison. So good. He better be building a study. <laughs> with mahogany furniture and leather-bound books. No, yeah, That's exactly right. But yeah, that, that, that little section from MacDonald really does make me want to dig into his works now. And as Lewis comes to the end of the chapter, he summarizes everything. He says, If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly. Though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight in goodness. And the process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant 
what he said. Mic drop. <laughs> but I have a question. What are you doing after this episode? Nothing? Well, why not rate us on iTunes? It just takes five seconds. Or two minutes if you want to go further up and further in and write us a review. We should encourage people because David sent me a screenshot this past <gasps> week. Oh, this was heartbreaking. It, yeah, it, was, it built some humility in David. I was okay with it. Uh, <laughs> it was our first ever non-five-star review. We got a four-star. I, I can only assume that his computer crashed while he was listening and didn't manage to get to the end. <laughs> but what I thought was, I'm, I'm okay with this. I know we're not perfect. But I would love to know what kept it from the five. <laughs> so I wish the person would have wrote a, a review so then we could have realized what they didn't like. Yep. Write in. Tell us what about Matt you don't like if you were that person. But speaking of written reviews, uh, as always, to inspire you, here's a review of one of the podcasts I listen to each week. It's called Side Hustle School. If you ever wanted to start a side hustle, a means of making some money on the side to provide an outlet for your creativity, do yourself a favor and listen to Side Hustle School. Every morning there's a short episode, under 10 minutes, telling the story of someone who's gaining a little more independence and money for themselves by launching a side hustle. Even though I personally don't have a strong desire to start one, I listen to this podcast every day to help inspire me to step out into the world, to take some risks, and to grow in creativity. This podcast is a side hustle. I mean, yeah, we're not making any money and we're pouring money and time in, but it's, it's, it's like a side project that brings joy and passion. Exactly. I feel far braver to step out and do new things if every morning I'm listening to the stories of other people doing that. Yeah, even if it means getting a four-star review. Even if it means getting a four-star review. And please feel free to contact us on RestlessPilgrim.net and Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. Tell us why you think we lost that final star. And until next time, further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>